Welcome, my name is David Thompson from the Fraser Valley in British Columbia. I am here to share the Word of God out of a spirit of consciousness of being in His presence so that I speak as the oracles of God as commanded in 1 Peter chapter 4, I believe, verse 11. If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. It is out of the spirit of prophecy that we testify of the reality of God. And the spirit of prophecy comes out of worship. And it is a state of being that we should always be seeking to walk in. That's why in Revelations 19, the angel commands the apostle John not to worship him and says, See thou do it not, for I am thy fellow servant, and of thy brethren the prophets. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. The spirit of prophecy that testifies of the reality of who God is comes out of a heart of genuine worship. And so I will seek to be in a conscious state of worship while I am sharing with you to be sensitive to hearing what God would be seeking to say to you as an individual who in God's foreknowledge has come to listen to this message and to the corporate body of Christ and whoever else this message is for at this particular time. I receive my messages by the casting of lots, a practice that was done throughout history by the Church of Israel before Christ and also after Christ. This week I received various passages. I've only had a chance once this week to share from the Word of God because of a lot of unexpected things that took up a lot of time. But I want to share briefly the passages I received this week and in particular minister from one theme chapter, which will be First Thessalonians chapter 1. And so I will first read First Thessalonians chapter 1 and then from there share the other passages of Scripture. I try to do this at least six days a week. This time it's been a bit less. So I'll share the four passages of Scripture I received after reading First Thessalonians chapter 1 from which I will particularly share the word of God. So reading in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, Paul and Silvanius and Timotheus unto the church of the Thessalonians, which is in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith and labor of love and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of God and our Father, knowing, brethren, beloved, your election of God. For our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Ghost and in much assurance as ye know what manner of men we were among you for your sake. 
and ye became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Ghost, so that ye were in samples to all that believe in Macedonia and Achaia. For from you sounded out the word of the Lord not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith to God were to spread abroad, so that we need not to speak anything. For they themselves show of us what manner of entering in we had unto you, and how ye turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. Excuse me as I take a brief drink of water before beginning this message. I do not know even if these passages knit together into a common theme, but I do know that passages that I thought could in no way knit together as a common theme by the Holy Spirit often do come together in my experience of preaching without hardly any preparation. Basically, I meditate on a chapter for a half an hour and make brief notes on that chapter and immediately speak. And if I don't immediately speak, there hasn't been any preparation beyond the half hour of notes and meditation. And so I want to now just go into the other passages to see exactly what God would be seeking to say from the few passages of Scripture that I have received this week. On February the 2nd, on Monday, I received Daniel chapter 8. And I'll just make a brief a reading of what notes I put on these chapters. Daniel chapter 8 is a prophecy concerning the future of events that are to take place in the world, in particular in regards to the Antichrist and that evil world system eventually being conquered and taken over by the kingdom of God. And so I make these Brief comments. The kingdom of this world in the last days will have ten kings, if you will, or rulers, out of which one ruler, just south and east of Israel, will be the Antichrist. They will cause economies to prosper and will also conquer by deception to rule the world. But this kingdom will not last long and will be destroyed by the kingdom of God in heaven that will make the judgment at the right appointed time that has brought the greatest purification to the saints through the trials from this oppressive antichrist system and king. These notes have just been read by microphone and so sometimes they may not be worded the best. And then on February the 3rd, Tuesday, I received 2 Timothy 4, which is an exhortation to Timothy as an evangelist to fulfill his ministry. And I mention this. 
To enter full-time service under charge from God requires the preaching of the word to be instant, even when not notified to be prepared to preach. This involves reproof, rebuke, exhortation that is with patience and good teaching. It requires to endure afflictions and to do the work of an evangelist that gives full proof of one's ministry being valid and pure from God. We should always be prepared to be offered as a living sacrifice and martyrdom and to know that we have fought with diligence to the end in keeping our persuasion of trust in God with a godly life. We also must have confidence that God will deliver us from every evil work, especially when we are facing the threat of harm or death from the enemy, and also that God will preserve us onto his heavenly kingdom. Concerning those that oppose and persecute us, we should never forget that God will reward them according to their works. That doesn't mean that we take offense. God is calling his people to even bless those that curse us. That can only come out of a genuine relationship with God that recognizes the greatness of God's mercy and love to us individually. On Wednesday, I received a passage that is more closely related to what I want to share from 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, the theme chapter. And that is from Jeremiah chapter 3, where God is pleading for Israel to turn from their backslidings and saying, you're, even though you're backsliding, I'm telling you, I'm married to you, and I'm pleading with you to turn back to me. That's basically what is happening in the message of this chapter. Now, on this Jeremiah 3, I make the following comments. The Lord experiences the pain of the treachery of his people as a nation or a body of believers in divorce from him and pleads for them to repent with declaration that he is married to them. Even though there is present adultery, he foretells of the day when they will return to him. God declares that the secret of this restoration will be in them coming to know him in intimacy as God the Father. The secret is obedience to God's voice by recognizing God's voice behind the commandments of his word, out of coming to know God as the Father. This is particularly strongly indicated in Jeremiah 3.19, which says, But I said, How shall I put thee among the children, and give thee a pleasant land, a goodly heritage of hosts, of nations? And I said, this is the solution. Thou shalt call me my father and shalt not turn away from me. So it is in the revelation of God being their father that there is the transformation of their heart, spiritual rebirth individually and corporately as a nation. 
in 1 Thessalonians, I want to point out this emphasis by the Apostle Paul on God the Father in the first part of this passage. So now back to the theme passage, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Paul and Silvanius and Timotheus onto the church of the Thessalonians, which is in God the Father. There is the emphasis that the church is in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ. But there is an emphasis that goes on. Then it says, grace be unto you and peace, what? From God our Father. That's the first emphasis. And the Lord Jesus Christ. And then it again talks about God. We give thanks to God always for you. It emphasizes the Father also in the last part of verse 3. There's a difference of understanding in one's relationship as an individual and corporally as the body of Christ to God in government, a personage as the Father, as opposed to government of personage as the Son. And so we see that in relation to God the Father in the last part of verse 3, it says this, in the sight of God our Father. In verse 3, in relation to the Son, it emphasizes the present aspect of our relationship and its outworking by saying, Remembering without ceasing your work of faith and labor of love and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. This is an ongoing process in the present time and space realm. So I want to emphasize here before I go on an understanding of Elohim, which is the Almighty's one, the one true God. The word that is used in the Old Testament, one of the words that is used often for God is Elohim. El is speaking of someone that is all-powerful. Sometimes the word El is used. There is a verse in Psalms that says that we should extol him that rides in the heavens by his name El, meaning God. Elohim is the plurality. And so that's why I say the Almighty's one. In Genesis, it says, let us, there's a plurality there, make man in our image. And it is God that is speaking, Elohim. There are those, many, that misunderstand that we believe in three gods. This is the farthest from the truth. In fact, I will show you the opposite. That those that claim to deny the plurality of God are denying that God is God in his almightiness. And this is how. When God is described as the Father, as opposed to the Son, as opposed to the Holy Spirit, when there's a differentiation of emphasis 
in relation to the one true God, and I emphasize one true God, as the word of God says, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. There is the understanding of God as the Father, as that God is in government beyond time and space and is the originator of all things. The meaning of the word Father is originator. It also has the understanding of experience through time. The understanding of God as the Father is that aspect of God that is beyond time and space and government. If God could not be in conscious intelligence or entity or personage beyond time and space, he would not be ruling beyond time and space, and therefore he would be less than God, less than Almighty as he could not transcend beyond time and space to see the end from the beginning, nor could he have been the originator. But God is understood as the Father in personage, as that aspect of God in personage that is beyond time and space in governance, that sees the end from the beginning. And that is why in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, it emphasizes in the sight of God our Father. It is God seeing the end from the beginning in government beyond time and space. The Son is the full expression of the Father into the creation realm, that is, the time and space realm. And if God could not be in conscious intelligence of entity or personage, if you will, within the time and space realm, that is the creation realm, then he would not be able to rule or relate over that realm and rulership as well as rule over it. And therefore, he would be less than almighty, less than God. God, as the Son, the word Son means expression. The Father is the originator. The Son is the expression of the very source, who is God. He is the full expression of God into the time and space realm in governance, government of personage. That is why it says in Hebrews 1.3 that Jesus Christ is the full expression of God the Father. The word Word also means expression and is another description for the word son. So always in relation to the son, we have an emphasis on what is happening in the present realm, the outworking of God's creative activity in relation to his creation. And in this particular case, in this letter, to the church of the Thessalonians. There is the emphasis of being in Jesus Christ in relation to the work of faith, the labor of love, and the patience of hope. These are things that are growing and are working out in one's lives in a present time and space realm. And then we have God in personage or conscious intelligence also as the Holy Spirit, 
filling all space. So you have the Father beyond time and space. That's the ultimate aspect of existence, beyond time and space. You have the Son in time and space, the other aspect that is ultimate in existence. And filling all space, the third aspect, which is an ultimate aspect of existence. The Holy Spirit of God is in omnipresence, everywhere at the same time. God's presence is attached to every particle of existence, and he also is in conscious entity of intelligence or personage in omnipresence with power to raise the dead, to reverse the molecular structure, to do anything because his presence is attached to every particle of existence. In fact, if you go to my website at ultimatemeaning.com and go to the section on life after death videos, you will see a secular scientist, which is an expert in physics, talking about how all of the theories point towards a pervading existence in all of space, even where there doesn't seem to be anything but mere emptiness, that is like the neurons of a brain. And he's concluded that there is a highly involved superintelligence that pervades everything, like the neurons of a brain from their study of physics and all the analysis of particle collisions with the Big Hadron Collider in Geneva, Switzerland, and so on. God's presence is attached to every particle of existence with conscious intelligence and can be in personage in more places than one place at the same time with creative activity in the Holy Spirit. And so we have one God that could only be ultimate as being in personage beyond time and space, in time and space, and filling all space. And any God that is not understood to be in these three aspects could not be almighty. And within this triunity of God, there is an inter-reciprocal relationship of fellowship that allows love to ever enlarge and grow. I am writing a book on these things, and the basic theme of that book is the fear of God. Because it is in the fear of God that there is this secret discovered of abiding in an intimate relationship with Elohim, with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. The key of this is seen in Isaiah 33, around verse 5 or 6, where it emphasizes concerning the Messiah, and it's very clear that the context is talking about the Messiah and could not be talking about anyone else that the fear of the Lord is his treasure. And there are many other verses that emphasize the importance in Jesus Christ, the Messiah, of the fear of the Lord being his treasure. The reason the fear of the Lord is his treasure is because it is in 
growing and, and abiding in the fear of God, that there's this secret of intimate oneness with God in fellowship that is reciprocal and ever enlarging and growing. The word of God says that the secret of the Lord is with them that fear him. It says the secret of the Lord is with them that fear him and he will show them his covenant. There are many verses which I will not emphasize right now. The other passage of scripture that is significant in regards to this relationship can be seen in Colossians by the Apostle Paul. So we will just turn briefly to Colossians for the moment and look at this particular passage of Scripture in Colossians, I believe, and I'm ad-libbing this, I think it's around chapter 2. Yes, this is it. In verse 1, Paul says this, for I would that ye knew what great conflict I have for you and for them at Laodicea, and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh, that their hearts might be comforted being knit together in love, and unto all riches of the full assurance of understanding, to the acknowledgement of the mystery of God and the Father and of Christ, in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Paul sees that the importance and the most important thing is that our hearts are knit together in love and that this happens as we have an understanding and an acknowledgement of the mystery of God as the Father and of God in Christ. It is in the mystery of the triunity of the relationship between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, but in particular the emphasis between the Father and the Son here, that are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In fact, the secret to having unity with one another. This is also emphasized by Christ in his great prayer in John 17 where he says, Father, I pray that they would be one as we are one, that they would be one in us, and that they would be one in such a way with one another. And so Paul is carrying this same burden that was the very heart prayer and heart cry of Jesus Christ, is that we would come into this oneness to be his corporate bride, that it involved knowing the mystery of the Father and of the Son. And the secret is in the fear of God. And so I need to emphasize what the fear of God is briefly. The fear of God is not some intellectual assent. It is a choice that involves a deep turning from the heart. It is a choice to recognize God for the reality of who God is. The reality of what could only possibly constitute God as Almighty. 
this may be something that is not so much in the conscious mind, but is very much what the heart is perceiving. The conscience of people is basically what? Everyone has a conscience. A child is born with a conscience. It can be easily seared and distorted through the distortion of what it is exposed to through the parents. In that case, the conscience is suppressed, but it is still there. But the conscience is basically an inherent knowing of what is good. An inherent knowing of what points onto good as opposed to what does not. An inherent knowing of what is constructive onto life and meaning and purpose as opposed to that which is destructive and empty and meaningless. And all of us being created in the image of God have a conscience. And sometimes in the awareness of the mind, there may be just be the simplistic intellectual knowledge in the mind as well as the heart that God, that this is good and this is on to life and these things that point towards what is constructive and meaningful on to life point towards what must be the ultimate good, that there must be some ultimate meaning and purpose and good. I am not here to get into an in-depth on all of this and how even if one was not brought up with a distorted tradition in some savage tribe somewhere where they in the past many generations back rebelled against the one true God and developed traditions of worshiping demons and animal sacrifice and so on. Many of these tribes around the world that do these things describe through their songs a time in the past when they worshiped the one true God and fell away from the one true God. And you can find this information in a book called Eternity in Their Hearts. What I want to point out here, though, is what the fear of God is. So I pointed out that there is this basic awakening of the conscience that points out to, unto ultimate good. And really, whether it's conscious in the mind or more in the heart, there is this also in this awareness. There is the awareness that what must be ultimately powerful, that created all of this beauty and creation, must also be totally pure, in a morality of love that can be totally entrusted with unlimited power in life and not corrupted by it. There is the awareness that what could be all powerful like this must be good. And if it must be good, it must be trustworthy of such great power. 
And so there's this awareness. God, God's love has integrity. Oh, I could spend hours on this, but basically I want to share this. When I talk about love, I'm talking about the highest form of love known in the Bible is agape love, which is more than just emotion. It is basically free choice that is always choosing the highest lasting good over any more immediate choice of gratification that would be less. Only God is love and has this totally pure love that has such integrity such purity of integrity that it is a blazing fire of judgment against the slightest word, thought, or deed that would be contrary to this love, this love that always chooses the highest, lasting good. And there is, even in those that have a conscience and have not heard the gospel, the awareness that can be awakened that there is a creator, that must be totally, ultimately good and trustworthy to be able to hold unlimited power. And if there was not that quality of being, there would be the dissipation of power. There would be corruption. There would be, eventually, the dissipation of power and the loss of power that is indicative that God would not be God nor the source of such ultimate power. This aspect of the being of God is illustrated in creation, in the many negatives and positives that we see that make up all of life. It is, as it were, the, for lack of a better way of illustrating it, the ultimate negative of the universe. But it's not really a negative, it is the greatest positive, for it is the foundation for the ultimate positive. And what is this ultimate negative? It is this integrity of love that is a blazing fire of judgment against the slightest word, thought, or deed that would be contrary to love. That quality that always chooses the highest lasting good. It is represented as a negative symbol in electricity, which represents foundation, which represents cutting off all that would be contrary to holding unlimited life and power, that would have the element of corruption in it, that would not be able to be entrusted with unlimited power in life. Only God has such a purity of love that there is no corruption in him. That is why the word of God says, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. And there are many other verses related with such statements. This is also in this negative symbol, a symbol of foundation from which can spring forth creativity without corruption that can ever enlarge without end, going on forever and ever, in greater, greater realms of creativity and fulfillment. The foundation is in the holiness of God, which is the protective aspect of God's love, that is the integrity of his love that requires judgment. 
and from that foundation springs forth the plus symbol, which is the symbol of the cross, that this love would have such purity that it could assure to creation with its own free will, with the capacity to rebel, the capacity of hell and destruction and corruption, that it could assure to creation with free will, which only has a capacity to have love and to express it, that it could assure to that creation destiny. How? Without violating the integrity of his being that requires judgment against the slightest that is contrary to love. How is that so? It is because this love is so pure that only God himself could possibly absorb the judgment of our sin upon himself and did so by entering this time and space realm and suffering more than you a mere creature could ever imagine and humbling himself more than you a mere creature because he loved you so much and wanted you to be part of a corporate bride. So he absorbed all the judgment upon himself on the cross in Jesus Christ. In the center of history, no animal, no human being, no matter how righteous his life is, would not have an element of corruption in him, even in his thoughts and motives. And the only way that there can be an, an annulling of corruption is with that which is totally pure and yet fully represents our soul and spirit. And so God incarnated himself into this world and was tempted in all points as we are and yet without sin. And through his obedience out of his union with God, as it were, took the first man, Adam, in which the whole human race existed and in which we existed, in our fallen state. And he took, as it were, that first man, Adam, and through his obedience, nailed him to death on the cross so that we could enter the second new Adam, which is Jesus Christ. Now, I am talking particularly about the mystery of the being of God, and I've emphasized the ultimate negative and the ultimate positive. The holiness of God being the negative and the positive being the mercy of God, the power to pr provide mercy, to assure forgiveness and destiny to those that repent and receive his love. Poured out in his blood on the cross so that you could be cleansed and washed white as snow. Now, I want to go back to the theme of this passage, which in this particular message is on God the Father, and the mystery that Paul is talking about in Colossians chapter 2, about the importance of understanding the unity even within the oneness of God. For there is only one God, but he is in three aspects of government. 
to govern beyond time and space, in time and space, and fill all space and governance. What is the fear of God? It is the recognitions of these two aspects of the being of God. If one, even that is not exposed to these truths, has a conscience that is awakened, they will also be aware that for there to be an ultimate being of power that created us, he not only would have to be filled with an integrity that could be entrusted with ultimate power, but would be able to assure destiny. For if God would create beings or create anything that did not have purpose and meaning that could not be assured destiny, it would be implying that he created what's imperfect and therefore would be less than God. So the evidence that God is indeed God, that God is indeed the Almighty's one, is not merely in the integrity of his love to judge, but that this integrity of love is so pure that it is transcendent with the power to show mercy through perfect atoning sacrifice. Yes, from the very time of Adam and Eve, they received forgiveness of sins. And this message that I am preaching was preached from the very time of Adam and Eve. Maybe not literally and audibly the way I am, obviously. But that message was nevertheless there very clearly. There was a clear understanding, if you read the Word of God, that the source of forgiveness is not in the animal sacrifice. It is in God. God is the one that forgives. Has the power to forgive. There was the understanding that an animal sacrifice could not represent their soul or spirit, but merely their body, and therefore could only cleanse the physical realm of their body. To allow God's spirit to dwell with their soul and spirit, but not to indwell it before Christ. I don't have time to show all the scriptures, but there are many. And the implication that God has the power to forgive and that it does not lie in an animal sacrifice, which is very clearly pointed out in various scriptures, clearly implies that this can only point to one possibility and that God himself is that perfect atoning sacrifice. And so we have many prophecies throughout the Old Testament that clarify that God himself is that perfect atoning sacrifice. Including the scripture in Zechariah 12 where it foretells that Israel as a nation will come to recognize Jesus Christ as their Messiah. When they are surrounded by the nations and their military might is broken and they cry out to God in their desperation and then the Messiah, Jesus Christ, returns and stands on the Mount of Olives and it says there in Isaiah, they shall, in Zechariah 12, they shall look on me whom they have pierced. It's saying, me is referring to God there. They shall look upon God whom they have pierced. And then as a nation, they will experience spiritual rebirth. And then the millennial kingdom will come and God will destroy the Antichrist system around the world.
The secret of this fear of God is the recognition of the beauty that is behind the holiness of God. That is the integrity of his love. Because you see, it's out of the holiness of God that there's no corruption. And therefore, there springs out of the holiness of God wholeness. For that which has no corruption is totally filled with life and is totally whole and complete and able to ever enlarge in fulfillment and creativity. And out of the wholeness comes beauty. God is the very source of beauty. He is the very source of all that is good. When you are in love with a woman, it's because of the beauty you see in her that attracts you and you cannot help but declare how beautiful she is. And you are seeing a wholeness in that person and you are seeing a beauty. But the source, the ultimate source of beauty is in the creator that created all that is beautiful and good. And so out of holiness of God's being springs wholeness and out of wholeness springs beauty. And so King David says, one thing have I desired of the Lord and that will I seek after that I may behold the beauty of the Lord and inquire in his temple all the days of my life. And this is also emphasized with other verses that command us to worship God in the beauty of holiness. There's a beauty that issues out of the reverence towards who God is in the purity of his being that will not tolerate corruption. What happens to many people is that they see the consequences of suffering because of rebellion against the holiness of God, and they take offense and blame it on God. And so they see that God is holy, but they've lost sight of the goodness that is behind the holiness of God. And they become bitter and take offense. And out of that offense, they begin to carve in the imagination of their heart their own image of God that will allow them to be justified before an idolatrous monotheistic God that they see as holy, but they do not see as being able to assure mercy and forgiveness that they do not see as good, that they do not see as ultimate. They believe, therefore, that they can provide some self-sufficient performance to be acceptable before God. And so it becomes merely robotic performance, merely ritualism, without relationship so that you have a hierarchy that controls the masses and the masses find their security and identity more in their fear out of being rejected by the hierarchy and by their friends than in their relationship with God. And so there's a counterfeit truthfulness and a counterfeit love. The Word of God commands us to have both, that we speak the truth in love. Now, in the being of God, there is truthfulness, which is 
the holiness of his being. And there is the evidence of his love in his mercy to assure forgiveness. Now, in the triunity of God himself, in the fear of God, there is the recognition of these two aspects of the being of God, the holiness of God and the mercy of God, which springs forth with grace. The Hebrew meaning of the word mercy has the understanding of grace in it as well. In the New Testament, mercy is the understanding of God forgiving and showing mercy so that we don't receive judgment. And then grace is the understanding that it goes beyond that with favor. <clears throat> but in this relationship of God the Father and God the Son, we have also Jesus delighting in the fear of God, for the fear of God is his treasure, according to Isaiah 33, 5, and I believe it's verse 5 or 6. And so the Son delights in the glory that emanates from the Father of this holiness that is so pure that it just is filled with life and light and wholeness and beauty. And he says to the Father, Father, I love you so much. I'm filled with such thankfulness as I behold the glory of your being that is so pure in love that I want to reciprocate this, Father, by going into a great condescension and entering the time and space realm and suffering more than the mere creature and humbling myself and taking upon myself their sins so that I can bring before you, Father, a corporate bride that you can enjoy and inherit and be enlarged by. And the Father says to the Son, I see such purity in your being, such love, that I delight in you, my Son. And as much as it pains me to go through this and to let you go, I allow you to go into this condescension so that you can inherit a corporate bride and be enlarged in your love with this corporate bride that you bring to me. And so you see in this reciprocation of love that the fear of God is, the is, is exercised in a deep unity of love. There is the recognition first of the purity of God's being, of his holiness in both the Father and the Son that is reciprocated and is also in us true, too the same. When we see the greatness, how do we come to see the greatness of God's mercy to us personally? When we've recognized, first of all, the holiness of God, the integrity of his love, and our guilt before him that we deserve his judgment instead of running and trying to justify ourselves with an idolatrous image of God that requires performance, we come to the place of recognizing our need of God's mercy out of the recognition that we cannot meet the requirement of his holiness in ourselves. So we cry out and we say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And then we see the greatness of his love to us, that he became a perfect atoning sacrifice and that we could receive forgiveness and that, he for, that we can have the assurance of forgiveness and eternal life, everlasting destiny in heaven as part of his corporate bride. 
And so there is an ongoing process. For the word of God says, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him. And it is in the way we receive Christ that I just described that we continue to abide through a life of prayer. So the fear of God involves the recognition of who God is in the, re- in the, in the reality of his being to be almighty, which is these two aspects, the holiness of God and the mercy of God, the ultimate negative and positive, as it were, of the universe. And also in our being, there is the negative aspect that we see and are brought in utter awe of God and recognize that we deserve his judgment and we are humbled in awe of who he is and his holiness. Instead of rebelling against the consequences of suffering we see around us and in our own lives, we recognize that these consequences are because of our rebellion. And that God is good. Because if he wasn't holy and he didn't require these consequences, he wouldn't be holy, he wouldn't be whole, he wouldn't contain eternal life or be able to provide us eternal life. And so we are in utter awe of who God is and his holiness. And we are humbled. And in that humbling brought to the place of total honesty where we cry out, And we recognize that he has the power to assure forgiveness. And we cry out for mercy and receive his forgiveness. And so in that crying out, there is the reaching forth of our soul and spirit and faith like a clenched fist that becomes an open hand of surrender and trust in the persuasion of who God is. And that's what the word faith means. It means persuasion. Pestis is the word in the Greek. It means amen in the Hebrew, and it's basically the same meaning. Persuasion in who God is. Moral persuasion in who God is. That he is trustworthy. That he is ultimately trustworthy because of the quality of his being that allows him to be almighty. Capable of containing unlimited life and power without being corrupted by it. That is indicative that he is the very source thereof. And so as our soul opens up as an open hand, the Spirit of God as another open hand comes to rest against that open hand, forming two hands of prayer, also symbolizing the divine, the new divine seed, which is described in 1 John, which says, whatsoever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. So what is born of God? It is the faith that is birthed in us by our spirit opening up into a selfless state of trust and being held in that selfless state of trust by God coming in to dwell with our spirit in that selfless state of trust so that we have a new nature. And this is the victory that overcomes the world, the present order of things which is based on a principle of destructiveness that is the opposite of God's being of love. In the mystery of this relationship comes the secret of the unity within God, but also in our unity in God and with one another. So let me describe this a little bit better. The Father 
was known before Christ came. Even in the time of Adam and Eve, what did they perceive in the Father? They perceived these two aspects of the being of God that I've been talking about. They perceived the mercy of God out of the holiness of God. What did Christ say? He said, whoever has learned of the Father comes to me. He also said that he that has seen me has seen the Father. So from the very beginning, those that recognize God, the Father, in his mercy and in his grace, saw in the Father the Son, for they saw the mercy and grace of God being expressed from the Father to them in the time and space realm. And they cried out and their spirit and soul opened up like an open hand and then the Spirit of God came to dwell with their soul and spirit so that they knew God. As Christ said, concerning this, just before he died, before their soul and spirit could be cleansed, but you know him for he dwells with you but shall be in you. And that's the difference between before and after Christ. Oh, I could go into answering all the hard questions, you know. Well, why does it say that Israel will be given a new heart? Well, that's speaking about them as a nation. There's always been a remnant. Oh, why did they have the high priest come into the Holy of Holies then? Well, that's again a thing that's corporate as a nation. Individually, they had intimate relationship with God. Enoch knew God, had such a close relationship with God, he was translated. So did Elijah. They knew the born-again experience by God's dwelling with their soul and spirit through the cleansing of their physical body, through animal sacrifices, and the recognition that the source of forgiveness was in God and not merely in an animal sacrifice. And that there must be a moral purity in God that is so great that without violating the integrity of his being, he has the moral capacity to forgive. Because he has the capacity to be a perfect atoning sacrifice. That relationship, therefore, was very real in the knowing of God as the Father. There was the knowing of God as the Son from the very beginning. Because in the revelation of God, in his holiness and in his mercy that is received through choosing to genuinely fear God, there cannot help but be the birthing of faith that responds to his mercy and receives it in a heart of true repentance. That is why the Apostle Peter said that he perceived that God accepts all those that fear him when he was talking about Cornelius and the Gentiles. Because in the fear of God, there is the reception of who God is, the genuine fear of God. That is the message that will be preached in the last days. As it says in Revelations 14, there will be an angel 
which represents those that are preaching on the fear of God. And this angel will say, And I saw another angel come out of the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach, saying, Fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him that made heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains of waters. The emphasis of the gospel in the last days before the world system is destroyed and the Antichrist system comes in its place, which is described in Revelations 14, is an emphasis on the fear of God and that this is the everlasting gospel that it has been preached from the beginning of the world and even it existed in the reciprocation of angels and their relationship with God before then in a different way, but with the basic same principle of reciprocating the recognition of God's holiness and of his great love that springs out of it with the ability to assure, assure destiny. Too much to get into. I want to just emphasize this in a more practical way now for your lives as believers in the body of Christ. There's a scripture that says, He that dwelleth in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. The secret to dwelling in the secret place of the Most High is in the secret of the fear of God. For it says, The secret of the Lord is with them that fear him. You have the picture in the Old Testament tabernacle of the Holy of Holies, in which there is the mercy seat over which there are two angels, which represents the holiness of God that will not tolerate sin and that guards the mercy seat, representing the holiness of God's being. But then out of that holiness of God's being, there lies the mercy seat, and from there springs forth incense, unto God, pure worship. Remember, the angel is emphasizing the fear of God, and out of that emphasis of the fear of God is the emphasis on worshiping God. And that's worshiping God out of a pure heart, out of the recognition of who God is, and reciprocating the mercy of God out of the holiness of God, out of delighting in the holiness of God, out of a heart that is repentant, God's love, we need to allow it in our lives by waiting on him and being in awe of who he is. The word of God emphasizes the importance throughout the scripture of waiting on him. And the word wait has a number of meanings in it in the original Hebrew. I don't have time now to give you the exact letters, but in the symbolic letters, it's very clear. It has the understanding, if you go to the ancient Hebrew lexicon, A-H-B-L, ancient Hebrew lexicon Bible, I believe it is. But there's, this is the meaning of the word wait. It has the understanding of a rope being twined together. The first letter is the symbol of the sunset and has the understanding of rotation, of condensing, of concentrating. And I don't remember what the second letter is, but I believe it might be 
the cane, which represents hooking something in to being yoked and learning. And so our identity becomes, as we learn to wait on God and let our own self-initiated thoughts and presumptuous thoughts recede and be still and know he is God and become aware of the awesomeness of God, out of that comes a twining, a twining in identity with who God is that becomes stronger and stronger like a rope, being twined together. The other meaning of this word is the collecting of water as a pool. There's the understanding that this involves also the cessation of our own presumptuousness and activity before God. We learn to let the swirl of all the things in our heart and mind fall away so that we come into this reciprocating relationship of who God is in his holiness and mercy and begin to enter into the fellowship of faith working by love. Faith is responding to the love that is perceived out of the mercy of God, which springs forth out of the awareness of his holiness. And Paul the Apostle says that faith works by love. And this all comes out of the fear of God, which is the recognition of who God is. In ultimate trustworthiness, the persuasion of who God is in love that is ultimate and only possible in these two aspects of his being. For there can be nothing more and there can be nothing less that would be ultimately trustworthy. And so it says in the New Testament, you are dead and your life is hid with Christ in God. What is that meaning? We can come into such a relationship with God where we know the secret place of a relationship, a fellowship and intimacy with God as the Father and the Son in the Holy Spirit. That the things of the world no longer can have any effect on us. We are so filled with his love that we can actually have enemies curse us and rise up out of that and have love in our hearts still towards them because we know the greatness of God's mercy and love to us. We know his presence that satisfies more than anything in this world so that the gods of amusement and pleasure do not take up and rob us of all our time. The sin of Sodom and Gomorrah was abundance of bread. Idleness and pride. That's what it says in Ezekiel. God is calling us as his people to know such a fulfilling life a destiny that is so fulfilling and it's never found in idleness. It's never found in abundance of bread and pride. That will never fulfill, that will never satisfy. The only thing that satisfies is the very source of wholeness, which is the holiness of God and the reciprocation of who God is in his love out of that. In the reception of his power 
to love us so much that we can receive his grace, his mercy. This is the secret of unity. So when we have people in the church that are, and churches that are filled with people that have committed divorce, what is the root of that? It is hardness of heart. And where does that hardness of heart come? It comes because there has been a catching up with the things of the world, the gods of amusement and of pleasure and of idleness that are so rampant in our society. God is calling his people to come back to their first love. To know in their heart such a humbling like, the neg like a powerful negative and such an awareness of the goodness of God and his mercy like a powerful positive that it breaks the shell of that pride and causes life to flow like electricity flows when there is the connection of the negative and positive. I had one lady come up to me once and share with me how she was getting ready to divorce her husband. And God was challenging her, saying, go and wash his feet with a towel, and she didn't do it many times. Finally, she did. And he broke down in tears and said, don't do that, don't do that, and she did. And she broke down in tears. And the hardness in their heart was broken. And their marriage was spared, and they've been married for 25 years since when I talked to her about, and she shared this wonderful testimony. God is calling his church to repent of hardness of heart that has caused adultery from him with the world and has caused divorce and adultery with one another because we don't know the secret of true unity and love for one another. To be like Christ and like Mary that saw the greatness of God's mercy and broke the alabaster box of her whole year's living at his feet in thankfulness for his mercy. God is challenging us not to rationalize and justify ourselves, but to be bold and courageous for who God is and go and humble ourselves before those that have done despite to us and are more wrong than us, but admit our faults even though they may be more wrong in order to win them and choose to forgive them and choose to bless those that curse us, not out of some religious gritting of our teeth, but out of recognizing who God is in our lives through entering into a life of waiting on him in prayer where we learn to be in the secret place of the Most High, to be in that place where we're hidden with God and dead to the things that would affect our heart with such hardness. Yes, you're dead and your life is hid with Christ and God. This is what God is calling his people to do. Remember the verse in Jeremiah where God was pleading with Israel because they were backslidden. And he said in Jeremiah 3.19, But I said, How shall I put thee among the children and give thee a pleasant land and a goodly heritage of the hosts of nations? And I said, Thou shalt call me my father, 
and shalt not turn away from me, because they will find as a nation Israel. The secret is in recognizing God as the Father. And out of that, there will be the recognition of the Son, as is described in First Thessalonians that we read. Thank you for listening to this message. May it echo in your heart and be incarnated into great blessableness in your life that you may be blessed and find the fullness of your destiny. God bless you all. Amen.